Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music, TV and art of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, um, which now feels so long ago that we were using a kind of dial-up modem connection back then. Yes, I think I was about to purchase my first Atari. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This week, we're talking about the sale of Every Days, the first 5,000 days by the digital artist Beeple, uh, which took place at Christie's on the 11th of March, 2021. This wasn't your average piece of digital art, which of course is why it has wormed its way onto the hyped uh, radar. It sold for $69,346,250. And by it, I just mean a JPEG, um, which is, you know, rather absurd when you you think about it, that you, you spent nearly $70 million and you've got nothing to take home with you, but but a kind of file, a digital file or link. Um, Tom, this is the sort of nub of our of our episode, really. How did a JPEG come to command so much money? Uh, just to underline that point, Zoe, it's, it's not even that you get the JPEG. You get a link to the JPEG. Like you don't even get the physical file itself, um, a file that is indistinguishable from any other reproduction of it that one might find if you were just looking on your monitor. Um, Before I say a little bit about what's special about this JPEG, um, let me just say one word about the sale price for this piece. Um, This $69 million means that Beeple, who is a digital artist, Mike Winkleman, that none of us have heard of really before, um, is now the third, it's the most, the third highest price for a living artist at auction. So he's now coming in number three after David Hockney and Jeff Coons. This is an amazing transformation. What's special about this JPEG is that it is an NFT, which stands for non-fungible token. Um, And while wearing my technophobe hat, let me try and explain a little bit about what an NFT is. An NFT is uh, a kind of digital file that has been produced uh, using blockchain technology. Um, And blockchain uh, kind of forms of encryption go back, I think, at least to uh, 2017, I think is when they started to be used for art. Um, But blockchain is the same technology that's used for cryptocurrencies um, in particular. Um, And what's special about uh, blockchain is that it's a kind of public ledger. um, And it means that any digital product that's created on blockchain is completely unique. You know, it is something that, although visually might look very similar to any other version of it that you saw on a monitor or that you could kind of load up on Google, you happen to own through this file something that is completely original um, and completely authentic. So it's a it's a technology blockchain that allows you to create a completely singular, as a result, non-fungible kind of digital object. Zoe, how lucid did that sound? Did that did I mean, that make Tom, sense? To I'm you? just I'm ama- I'm reeling from the lucidity of it. I'm just I was <laughs> just thinking how impressed I am that you you've gone from technophobe to a blockchain kind of aficionado so quickly. Blockchain 
also shows all the transactions that a particular thing has undergone. So the NFT, I think for this Beeple will always show whoever has bought and sold is kind of indelibly marked in this blockchain um, system. So, so that's the other sort of aspect of its transparency. Uh, so there's a transparency which makes it authentic in a way. It makes it non-fungible. I was just going to add that idea about, as a result, the provenance of the artwork is publicly accessible. And so on the, on blockchain, you can see the transactions. You won't be able to necessarily see the name of the previous owners, but you can always see what price it's commanded previously. And um, what I was going to ask Zoe was, it's interesting that these NFTs, these digital objects are becoming collectible. Um, am I right in thinking that that the first tweet, you know, Jack Dorsey's first tweet yeah. was recently sold as well? Yeah. So there seems to be this, this whole world now of, of, digital artifacts um, that are going for lots of money. So, so the first tweet from Jack Dorsey, I think 2006 was just recently sold for $2.1 million to a Malaysian businessman for charity. So that's actually not very much when you're looking at the kind of 70 mil of, of, the, of the Beeple thing. But I think that there, there is this sort of strange turn now to applying values to, to digital files that are non-fungible as if they are works of art or, or objects with any kind of intrinsic value. And I think that's a huge change point, a huge flashpoint is that intrinsic value is now something completely different. That it's it sort of ceased to be really a, a concept with much traction. So I find that fascinating that, you know, okay, the, a first tweet, but you could have just seen that first tweet. And I'm, so I'm not sure exactly what the, the format was of the sale to make it be so that this businessman has the sole access to it. It must be that he's, he's got the kind of original coding that produced it or something. So I think it's, it's revealing a very um, peculiar obsession with authenticity and non-replicability, which seems to be going over and above almost anything else. And I think when that clashes with art, that's quite interesting. And I, Tom, I wonder, as, as by far the more optical of the two of us, what you make of the way that technology and the strange dynamics of this new market, blockchain technology, internet, everything else, how this prizing of authenticity and non-replicability, you know, how is that helping or, or hindering art? I mean, we, we spoke to a, an artist friend who thinks that actually it's on balance a good thing for artists. But, but what do you think, Tom? I think it's a good thing for artists in that it's helping protect digital artists' copyright. And obviously before blockchain technology, the problem was it was quite hard for digital artists to kind of lay claim to authorship and as a result to kind of make money from their work. That said, kind of people's status as artist, I think is, is dubious. Um, this is a guy who's got a background in computer science and he's done reasonably well with that, but someone by his own admission who knew nothing really about the history of art until he started making these huge sums of money. Um, I read one interview where he said the words abstract expressionism mean nothing to me. So he's coming to this completely blind. If you look at this work, 5,000 Days, it's made up of these distinct kind of cartoonish images. Um, it's very pop culture in a way. You know, it's worth thinking about an artist like Warhol 50, 60 years ago in terms of playing around with kind of pop culture devices. But, you know, he's got a bit of Pokemon in there. He's got a bit of Star Wars. It's got a little bit of political cartoons. It's like looking at a kind of pretty facile comic strip from what I can work out. However, what's interesting about it is the sheer scale on which this has been constructed. So none of the individual images are very arresting or are very interesting. You might want to look at them twice, but there's something about the kind of labor of 
5,000 days, like adding all these little things together up into this enormous array that makes it a strange kind of experience to even look at the thing. So, you know, is Beeple original? No. Does Beeple have a good visual sense? No. But what he is doing is saying something about the kind of new weird world of images, that kind of array of images that we're all swimming in and sort of drowning in every day. Yeah, I think that's that's the sort of nub of another really interesting point. But just before getting on to the signs of the total ruination of our aesthetic <laughs> sense and, and, and society going to the dogs, just thinking that impulse to think, oh, this isn't good art. Um, it, it, it's 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 just multiplicity. I mean, I remember going around art fairs over the last 10 years or whatever and being horrified by how rubbish video installations and other forms of, sort of digital art, which has been rumbling on for years now. In a way, the art hasn't entered a new era. It's the way it's being valued that's entered a new era. Do you think actually, Tom, that there has been a sort of qualitative change from the days of the, the trendy video art at, at the Freeze Fair and that was highly kind of unclear what you're supposed to take away from it had apparently limited aesthetic value and I wouldn't be surprised if the artists also had no idea what abstract expressionism is or or surrealism or any of those things I mean is Beeple actually qualitatively different and worse than than has than the kind of recent decade of of kind of technological art I suppose what you're calling digital art I guess we might wrap in with a bigger kind of question of uh, conceptual art more broadly, um, where art really is about an idea rather than about a kind of something that's been executed by hand or to do with kind of craft. You know, and it's worth saying that recently a banana that was duct taped to a wall was sold for several million dollars. So, you know, this this question of the inflation of the art market is a familiar one. Um, it is interesting to put this in a kind of genealogy and I'm gonna I'm gonna wink back uh, to Walter Benjamin, Zoe, someone who has appeared mm. uh, in your own musings not that not that <laughs> long ago, uh, but Benjamin famously in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen twenties wrote a classic essay called "The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction," in which Benjamin was interested in what happens to the aura of the work of art in an era of the industrial copy. Like, does the original of something matter after the coming of photography? after the coming of kind of film, where the actual content is in principle entirely replicable, like what's happened to the status of the original. So these these issues I think have been with artists for a long time. And you know, the Benjamin essay is a classic reference. I would say somebody like Andy Warhol is also someone who was super interested in this, like what makes a work of art unique versus playing around with that idea of replicability. You know, you think of his celebrity images like the Mao or the Marilyn, which is all about the kind of copy and the reproduction, but always with this little sense of what is singular. And so I think Beeple is actually, you know, with despite being clueless, is intervening in a major issue in the history of art that's been around for a very long time, which is how do you create something recognizable like, you know, how do you, what is it to own a Picasso? Well, it has to look like other Picassos, but also promise to give something unique, you know, something that people are willing to spend a lot of money for because of originality or rarity. And um, the thing I think that's changed is, is the sense that at least even with earlier forms of art, that signature, that statement of authorship was somehow linked to the artist's body. Um, you know, when you look at a sculpture or when you look at a painting, you're seeing something that has emerged quite literally out of the artist's body and is linked to the artist's body. And um, I think as we're moving into a sort of digital domain, um, that question of authorship 
yes, there's a, there's a kind of skill in the composition maybe, but it becomes about a weird kind of branding exercise. That relationship with the body, that relationship with work, I think is, is much harder to see. Um, you know, when we're moving into a world of kind of, dare I say, kind of depthless memes, we're moving into a world mm. where everything is just sort of free floating signs, but they're maybe not rooted anymore in the kind of labor of particular individuals or the kind of mind of particular individuals. Um, what do you think? I mean, you look at this big array of pixels, Zoe, um, does it make you think about what's going on with phones at the moment, I suppose, in terms of this mass multiplication? Yes, I mean, exactly. So I think there was something for me a little bit depressing about about this Beeple sale. Um, not because I don't think that things should sell for a lot of money. I, I'm, I'm not a kind of, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a perfectly kind of uh, proud capitalist in the sense that I, I don't think that, you know, certain kinds of morality should circumscribe, you know, the price that something goes for in the, in the open market. But I did think that what depressed me about it was that it was something beyond what even Beeple was a, aware of. It, it was an accumulation of a new aesthetic that speaks to people who spend way too much of their time and their kind of intellectual energy on scrolling through pixelated images on their phone. So a, a culture that increasingly spends its time looking at images that on, its, on, the, on a small little personal screen, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Everything is, is, as you say, depthless. It's all about the immediate grab of the image and it's the immediate grab of the video. That is kind of almost where not just aesthetic values begin and end, but where attention spans begin and end. And you can see that with the, you and I, Tom, we, we were investigating TikTok recently mm. um, out of fascination for, for just how much power TikTok stars have and, and how many, very many, 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 many millions of people spend what seems like a good bulk of their day watching these completely inane videos of people singing and dancing in, with limited clothing on. I mean, that seems to be kind of one of the, the main usages of it. So I think, I think over time, yeah, Beeple's thing is, is, is something in itself. It's a, it's a kind of a moment in time that he's produced this like particular image, but it speaks to, um, it speaks to almost like a, a, a dis, a disability now or, or a kind of disin, dis, disabling of the ability to appreciate and enjoy something still and singular. And you almost think, how could anyone produce a still life now? We've gotten to the sort of complete polar opposite of that. So um, I think I really like that, Zoe, that there's a kind of changing culture of attention. Um, this is a the kind of thing that visual theorists like Jonathan Crary have written a lot about, that we live in a 24-7 culture of images. And actually, as you say, that kind of absorption, that kind of slowness of looking, I think is, is becoming rarer and rarer. It's all about the kind of um, the acceleration of images. And one proof of that is that Beeple's fame before he did this um, was primarily through his Instagram following. You know, Beeple had 1.8 million Instagram followers because of his work as an advertiser. Um, and the people who are doing very well out of non-fungible tokens are people who are able to convert a kind of online celebrity into now a kind of real world um, art kind of market. That's, um, yeah, and that, that you've just put your finger on what I think is just, well, difficult for, for the, for old farts like us to deal with, which is essentially, or never mind us, you who actually understand art history, but that this bleed of brand into art and the fact that everything now originates in brand and branding strategy. And the fact he was using his Instagram for professional reasons and then getting good enough at Instagram allowed him to then 
suddenly move into this world of art. And, and the, the categories have just bled together in ways that kind of do absolutely nothing for art. I mean, brand wins, art loses. And you see it again, again and again, these girls, these, these, these super celebrities on TikTok, you know, they say, oh, they want to be actors. They want to have beauty brands. They, they want these other things. And they use this, this self-branding, the, the banality of self-selling really on these, in, the, in these media to do it. And it's without your own personal brand, you have no art. I think that has really troubling implications for the very notion of, of quality as well as art. So I think that is, is a really strange collapse. Um, I mean, Tom, the part of that, of course, is, is the way that the capitalism itself is determining these, these dynamics. And, you know, as I always say, I'm, I'm, I have nothing against capitalism, but don't you think that this is, this is all part and parcel of, of a new type of market? and a new kind of especially raw form of capitalism. I do think it's a new type of market. And, you know, when I think about fungibility, which is not very often before this week, <laughs> I guess, you know, you money, is the, money is the ultimate fungible. And so, you know, until, until the recent period, you know, when people thought about fungibility, they were often using terms taken from Marx, you know, who was obsessed with how money was the great kind of equalizer. Money was the thing to which everything could be reduced and everything could be exchanged. Um, and young Marx uh, famously imagined a world in socialism where once we've satisfied all of our human needs, every one of us will become an artist. Um, and I can't help but feel that even though we haven't had the socialist revolution, we are in this kind of weird new world where everybody is branding as a creative um, online. And they're, you know, they're generating content. Um, and this is an idea of being a creative without particular skill, without any sense of talent, without much sense of training, but that everyone sees themselves as a creator in some form. And so I do think there's, there's a weird new culture industry that is emerging. Um, and one that, you know, if we were being bleak, is linked to new forms of exploitation. Um, it would be interesting, Zoe, to see what you think about the clout market as an example of this. Um, but one form that I encountered recently was cameo, which sort of says a lot about sort of celebrity culture and this desire now that people are ranked by price. So, you know, in terms of how famous you are, you're going to set a different tariff as a celebrity and you will then give personalized messages to people. So, you know, you can compare whether you're a kind of D-list from a soap opera or you're an Oscar winning actress or you're the Duchess of York. All of you come with different prices. And if the price is right, you are willing to, you know, not sell any given product, but sell a bit of yourself, do some sort of kind of tailored performance at any moment of the day or night. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of stock market in human beings, I suppose, that is starting to appear that is, that is unsettling for me. Um, Zoe, could you explain what the clout market is? Well, actually, I'm not sure I can explain what the clout market is. I'm sort of only dimly aware of, of what I think it is, which is basically the concept of clout has been taken from being a word that we all use to signify some degree of influence. Um, and, and, and in the age of influencers, it has taken on a kind of very specific and much more potent uh, sharpened meaning, which basically means power. Okay. Um, it, but, but the way that translates is through you know, followers and fans. And, and what the clout market is kind of doing now, I think there are various manifestations of, of, of the clout market, um, is monetizing those, those forms of, of influence. So, so if you have fans, you monetize um, the fandom in new ways. The fans can also 
monetize their own fandom. So mm. everything, so, so clout is, is your social media relevance and power. You know, it's not just influence, it's power. And then it's how you can then, you know, all these new platforms for converting that into money. So um, one, I think one application of the clout market is that people, people's clout kind of up, you know, goes up and down. There's, there are ways in which, you know, certain influencers have scandals and, and their, their lives are kind of for public consumption. Well, there are ways of, um, you know, monetizing those, those ups and downs in popularity and, and those ups and downs in fortune. Um, and I think there's even ways you can kind of bet against someone's clout kind of rising and falling, a bit like p- traders hedge bets uh, and short stocks. So you can actually kind of short the clout of people. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really strange world in which, again, it's not that these people are talented or that there's nothing, there's no value to them apart from relative value. And that, that is what's sort of caught by this idea of, of clout and the fact that, you know, clout used to be a sort of casual way of saying, yeah, that person has real clout, but it wasn't, it wasn't a technical term. And now I think it, it really has become one. And basically the way I think of it is that it, this idea of monetizing clout is just bleeding out everywhere. I mean, Tom, maybe you can mention this platform now, now, but there's also, if you think of only fans, which we also looked at to our absolute horror the other night, if people want what you've got, you can sell that to them. And this is done under this banner of extra content. So if there are people who like to perv on you on your Instagram and your Instagram's free, you can then point them to an OnlyFans account where if they you know pay this subscription, they'll get extra glimpses of like an erotic you know, image of you or whatever it is, they kind of pay accordingly for that. I mean, another bizarre way in which this kind of incredibly naked form of capitalism is, is being used isn't so much necessarily clout. In fact, on the contrary, there's an idea that almost anyone can sell uh, tokens to their own lives. Yep. So anyone, you can just say, I'm selling votes. You know, you, you can now control me. You sell out, you basically kind of outsource yourself. So there's, I mean, platforms for that too. So, you know, people like to do it, especially with their favorite influencers, but there's, there's an idea that this will become, you know, widespread. So I'm having a slow day, not much money coming in, Tom, I could sort of put myself online and say, you know, you can pay, pay me. And then you get to sort of decide what I eat for dinner. It's a kind of confluence of incredibly raw forms of self-selling, basically object, complete objectification. I think a form of enslavement actually only with money. And combined with this sort of obsession with a, a certain type of social media influence, clout, whatever. So I think that it, it does all kind of connect to this extraordinary Beeple sale in the sense that there is there are all these new um, eco- markets of value that have been created, which to people like you and me, who were kind of basically raised in fairly traditional media and ways in education and stuff, it, it's sort of, it's, it's almost too horrifying to look too closely at. But we'll probably be sucked into it. Tom, before too long, you and I are going to be up on OnlyFans flogging our stuff. <laughs> before too long, I'm going to be spending money to decide whether Zoe eats granola or a banana. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to I'm going to have to work on my clout. Yeah, no, to, to get more to get more money at that. And I think the only thing is, you know, could you and I figure out how to pull off a beeple? No, I don't think I would know what. It's unclear what commands. I don't think anything commands all this money. But what you know, what but is I'm, it? And I think that the market for Beeple, I guess, relies on other people who appreciate technically how it's been executed. I mean, the funny thing about the Beeple sale is it's in some ways quite a kind of closed world and that the people who buy this kind of stuff using, it should be said, cryptocurrencies like Ether 
are people who are moving their cryptocurrency around, you know, different kinds of products. So they might use it for gambling. They might use it as a kind of gaming token. Uh, but here now they're using it for art. But it's essentially quite a small pool of the super rich who have enough of this cryptocurrency to be able to kind of engage in these kind of speculations. And so so Beeple, although it's kind of alarming, I suppose, is quite a closed world. It's a kind of niche world. It's a world that could easily overheat, like it's built on a kind of speculation. Um, whereas what's happening with um, these new platforms, platforms like, as you say, Cameo and New New and OnlyFans, is a kind of self objectification and a, and, a, and a willing surrender, I suppose, to the voyeurism of others. There's a kind of desire to kind of give up privacy, to give up intimacy, to give up anything that looks like authentic life um, or anything that's not for spectatorship um, and instead sell it to the highest bidder. And I can't help but feel this does deep damage to kind of both the, the performers and also the viewers that like, you know, human... Dignity, I suppose, is built for me on the idea of some things being private, some things being reserved for just a few. And we're in a world where people are monetizing, turning the most intimate moments into kind of public theater. Yeah, and absolutely. Kind of morally um, and politically, I think, is, uh, is, is somewhat um, dangerous. If I can make a final observation, I mean, some of the people who are doing very well out of this, of course, are celebrities. So some of the people who've done really well out of this, of course, are celebrities. Um, you know, Lindsay Lohan, weirdly, sold an image of her face as an NFT for $17,000. Um, and then weirdly, it was kind of resold very quickly for $57,000, which is a sign of the kind of speculation in these things. Um, but when interviewed about why she was doing this, she said, I believe in a world which is fundamentally decentralized. And I can't help think that all these people who are excited about uh, Bitcoin, um, some of these people are excited about NFTs, some of these people are excited about OnlyFans, they're all buying into a common illusion, which is if we can just escape from regulation, um, if we can get away from governments, if we can get away from states, if we can get rid of the middleman, you know, we're going to be empowered as artists. And I think the problem is that the logic of the market and the appetite of the market is just as constraining in a way as the constraints that might be imposed by regulatory bodies. So I think people are making themselves, you know, they think they're making money out of exploiting their assets, but they're putting themselves in the long run, I think in a much more precarious position. You know, when you think of a celebrity like Lindsay Lohan, what do people want to read about? They want to read about her screwing up. You know, it's drama, as you say, it's mm. scandal, it's mm. meltdowns. That gets people as excited mm. Mm. as the story of them wearing a lovely bikini and going on holiday. There's also a fascination with the kind of macabre. And so I do think it brings out quite unhealthy political instincts. Um, and I think this, this, this sort of fallacy that if you create the opportunities for in, infinite content, you know, this word content, these, mm. these, these YouTube, these TikTok stars and stuff go and live in content houses and they create more content, more co and people believe, oh great, there's all this democratization. We can all create content, but that's not how it works. If everyone is creating content. It doesn't mean that all of that content is somehow going to be, is going to reach the top. There's still always a kind of hierarchy that will keep most people down. And I think people are kind of weirdly not not getting that at the moment. I mean, the other thing that really has struck me about all this, and this is sort of my final thought, Tom, is that, you know, for years in the 90s, the 80s, whatever, there was all this talk of, of postmodernism, you know, things had become hyper real, for instance, that almost we were experiencing the world as a screen or as a kind of pop cultural canvas, or, you know, everything was disconnected. 
but it's funny because in a way there was that was nothing there was still real you know subculture was still culture you know this hyper real there was still a real and i almost just get the feeling that we've reached a moment now where finally the postmodern which has been anticipated but but had not actually been realized has come to fruition, would you say, Tom? I mean, let's go for a wild kind of statement and say, yes, postmodernism has arrived. We've become detethered from material, territorial uh, fix, you know, um, fixtures and fittings. We have been kind of you know, weirdly set free. Um, I do think that for, for, I think one of the new inequalities in the world is between those who can flourish and thrive in these new weird online hyper real environments or finding them a refuge. And those like the elderly, like those who are like who us. have access, like us, the technophobes who don't know how to kind of encode um, or devise our own cryptocurrency, that we are the ones who are going to be left behind and are not part of that conversation. Um, but I do think it raises, like the postmodernists recognized, really interesting things about the death of the author, to come back to what mm. we were saying earlier mm. uh, about people. I mean, the most interesting kind of thing I've seen recently about the postmodern phenomenon is this documentary that's actually on Storyville at the moment um, about Pepe the Frog, which is all about Pepe as a kind of meme that has broken free from the control of its creator, Matt Fury, the cartoonist who came up with Pepe as essentially a kind of sweet looking little critter, and how Pepe has become a kind of mascot for the alt-right for various kind of neo-Nazi and kind of anti-Semitic campaigns that Pepe allows people to say unspeakable things. And so the question is who controls Pepe out in this kind of decentered world of the internet? Certainly not the guy who originally devised him. So I think we are in a kind of weird Frankenstein's monster where electronic democracy and kind of internet democracy is meaning that the kind of the control um, of the basic signs and symbols of our culture and our democracy um, is being kind of eroded. You know, that there is this sort of frighteningly new kind of deregulated world. I could not agree more. I think the signs and symbols have just gone down the pan and we are flailing. Um, and it's not it's not good for us psychologically, emotionally, aesthetically, culturally. But frankly, I think, unfortunately, there's a whole cultural politics going on at the moment are even worse. So there's a lot to worry about right now. Um, <laughs> but Tom, now quickly, why the hype? Um I think we've covered a lot of it. All I would say is I think what's interesting about the, the Beeple sale and what it points to is the fact that it's part of the history of the present in that it's a moment where we're saying that these new forms of uh, online platform and digital communication have their own history. Um, when Jack Dorsey's tweet was sold, um, you know, the very first tweet, which was just went just setting up my Twitter, um, Dorsey reflected last month. I think years later, people will realize that the true value of this tweet, like the Mona Lisa painting, in other words, like that this is, you know, these are the masterpieces of our own age. And so there's something going on where computing, which seemed like the new frontier, like the thing that was beyond history or after history, is actually now itself becoming historicized. And you're getting a sense of certain kind of phases, certain steps, certain landmarks in the history of computing and digital life are themselves becoming antiques or becoming museum pieces. So mm. I think there's something interesting going on with the history of the present. Um, Zoe, what about you? Um, yeah, I think people are keen to, to cash in on that, sort of own a slice of, of history in the making. Um, I, I, otherwise, I, I think it's it's um, it's a funny moment. I mean, it was, you know, Wall Street bets. Uh, we saw internet communities, you know, completely upending the traditional kind of markers of, of value on the stock market. Um, you know, and then suddenly we get into this territory where the art market is is kind of upended. 
uh, by this new technology um, and by, by a kind of communal decision in a way, a consensus that something is suddenly worth something. So I think we're just in a, in a kind of post-pandemic bored moment of disruption partly or, and, and, and sort of rupture. So that, that's sort of partly the hype. Um, but, but for us, the hype is just because it, it's such a kind of moment of reckoning that it, it represents a sort of flashpoint, both in art and in technology and in what constitutes value. And for people like you and me, we find a few kind of concerning uh, implications there. I think other people just, you know, the hype is, is just the, the, the marvel at, at, at what money can be, you know, the fact that there is so much money floating around firstly, despite such a hard year. And then, you know, the kind of mystery of how it's been assigned. So that's what I would say. Join us next time for Line of Duty. 